Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. I'm your host, Kurt Savig, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk all about UFOs. Nothing but UFOs, just UFOs, but not recent UFOs. That's right, on this edition, I want to go back, far back, way farther back. Did UFOs start in 1947, or the Foo Fighters, or Flying Saucers, or how far back have they gone? Well. We'll find out about that in just a second. But first, as always, we have shout-outs. That's right. We have shout-outs going out to Becca, Josh, Alexa, Jen, Alexis, sorry, Jen, Elizabeth, Voidtech, Steve, Sherry, Artmuth and Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Paul, Ricardo, Damien, and Daniel, Jasmine, Ian, Eric, Brandon, Jen, Alexandra, Eek, George, Connie, Seth, Christine, Jason, Hayden, Cindy, Kim, Adam, Ashley, Erie the Cat, Fran, David and Sean, what's that, Loki, Lorelai, Carrie, Ezra, Robin, Will, Carrie, Jim, Kelly, Lauren and Phil Mangano, Bill Russell, Tanya, Chris, Brandon, April, Seth, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, Sean, the Sean Bishop, Cole, Ah Monsters, Paula, Alicia, Jerry, Leo, Austin, Rachel, Lindsay, Hahn, Jennifer, Megan, Aaron, Amy, Jeff T, Harley, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, Lauren, hey howdy, hi, Lauren McCune, Lily, Veronica, Nick, Autumn, J Mark, Carolyn, Martin, Jade, Nanashi, Megan, Heidi, Kira, Pablo, Chuck, Laura, Rutho, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson. Merry Christmas to you guys. Juliana, Dan, Laura, Gamerfan, Lauren, and David. Once again, a special shout-out to Joe Teague. Special shout-out to all my patrons. Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Uh, I can't think of any other ones off the top of my head. Uh, happy Holidays to everybody. Hopefully, you guys are going to be listening to this and go, hey, he sounds slightly better, or the audio is slightly better. Kurt might not sound any better, but the audio sounds slightly better. Well, that is all thanks to the patrons. That's right. I talked about it on uh, the last week's live episode, which hasn't been put out as the podcast yet. It was just the live one. Don't worry. That'll be put out soon. But I spent, uh, I say because of the patrons, but I spent the patron money for the past two months on a couple of different things. The first is a Rodecaster Pro. It's an all-in-one all-in-one kind of thing with all these kind of fun buttons that allow me to do funny stuff when I say something funny. <laughs> and many other things. But it's, an, it's a fantastic podcasting editing software or thing that uh, I think will really help out the show. It already has helped out the show. It allows people to call in a lot cleaner and clearer and sound better. Not only that, but I also have a brand new microphone that I'm talking to you guys on. So hopefully, again, hopefully... You guys can hear the difference and go, wow, that sounds a lot better. It sounds more professional. And if you can't, well, you know, I tried. Okay, with that, let's get into paranormal news. I don't have any paranormal news jingles uh, set up yet on this thing, so let's uh, just push a button and see what happens. 
That's right. It's time for Paranormal News. I'm still your host, Kurt Sambig. Stitch is still on my lap. Let's talk paranormal news. What's new? What's paranormal? What's paranormal news? Sure, why not? That works. Alrighty, first up in paranormal news, an updated way to calculate the likelihood of the existence of extraterrestrial civilizations. That's right. A small team of researchers from California Institute of Technology, NASA's JPL, and Santiago High School have developed an updated version of an old equation to calculate the likely uh, existence of extraterrestrial civilizations. That's right. The team has uploaded their paper to something. I don't know what this thing is. And they say, basically, um, the results of the team's work is not an estimate of the likelihood of existence of extraterrestrial civilizations, but a new formula that others can use to make their own calculations based on what they believe to be true. Because they took all these new factors into account, um, like uh, space, celestial objects, exoplanets, uh, the Goldilocks zones, the Big Bang theory, and everything that goes along with the Big Bang. So they took all of that, and they added something else not considered in 1961 when this was last done. That's the likelihood of other extraterrestrial civilizations arising and then unintentionally killing themselves off. Humans and other animals have a way of destroying their environments, so they figured it's almost happened here, probably will happen here if we're not, you know, a lot more careful than we've been lately. So maybe it's happened somewhere else as well. And it's the, this is the new key part to this calculation that'll allow us to figure out, or allow you, I'm not going to do the math. I was told there'd be no math in this podcast. Allow you to figure out the likelihood of other extraterrestrial civilizations and how many are out there. So if you do the math, um, you have to show your work, but uh, send it in to me via email, and uh, I won't know what the hell any of it is, so, you know, just bluff me, and I'll probably read about it on a future Paranormal News. Okay, up next in Paranormal News, a vintage year for Loch Ness sightings, says Monster, but as you all know, Nessie is not a monster. They said the Loch Ness Monster, not a monster, has popped her head up for the 12th time this year. Nessie was seen near the castle by Karen Scott and her partner when visiting from Aberdeen on uh, November 24th. They reported a creature in the water near the castle at 2.30 p.m. The creature's surface disappeared and then reappeared over a period of five minutes, said Gary Campbell, keeper of the official Loch Ness Sightings Register, that's a good job to have, which has accepted the record. He says this is the 12th accepted sighting this year, which in a year of lockdown is absolutely incredible. It just shows that whatever the situation, Nessie has not gone away and is finishing the end of the year with an, another unexplained appearance. It all adds to the mystery, and in many ways, it's a vintage year for sightings. I always like to hear that. I always want to hear from the experts that are out there that Nessie is not dead, because frankly... I don't ever want to report on that in paranormal news. Okay, the next story in paranormal news. Former CIA director says unexplained phenomenon might constitute a different form of life. It's a bit presumptuous and arrogant for us to believe that there's no other life forms out there in the entire universe. But they said that uh, regardless of what the heck these UFOs are, that the director, the former director of the CIA said many of the recently unexplained phenomena might, I want that put in there, might constitute a different form of life. 
which is just absolutely huge for anybody that was ever connected to the CIA to openly, publicly say extraterrestrials exist, which is basically what he's saying there, that they might exist. He goes on to say that speaking on a podcast, he said that uh, he did not know what the phenomenon was exactly. So it's a little presumptuous and arrogant for us to believe that we're the only life form, blah, blah, blah. But I think some of the phenomena we're going to be seeing continues to be unexplained and might, in fact, be some type of phenomena that is a result of something that we don't yet understand and that could involve some type of activity that some might say constitutes a different form of life. Holy shit, that is a wordy answer for it might be aliens. That's, I mean, that's all you got to say. I don't know, might be aliens. Could be. Uh, the, the article goes on to say that Nick Pope, a former employee and UFO investigator for Britain's Ministry of Defense, said that his comments are intriguing given his former position. Hey, that's what I said at the beginning of this one. He said, when I first heard the interview, I thought he was going to play it safe. And his mention of weather phenomena reinforced that view. But for him then to start speculating about something people, quote, might say constitutes a different form of life is extraordinary. This, this guy, the, uh, Nick Pope, goes on to say, well, it might have been a slip of the tongue and an inadvertent uh, of sen- muddling of tenses. I was also fascinated to hear him mention not just the previous Navy UFO sightings, but, quote, some of the phenomena we're going to be seeing as if he was talking about future events. And that is the key to this article. We're not done yet. There's more out there. There's more coming. And guess what? Up next in paranormal news, scientists find a strange signal coming from our closest neighboring star. That's right, astronomers have encountered a mystery surprisingly close to Earth. They've discovered that uh, Breakthrough Listen astronomers using the Parkes Telescope in Australia discovered a strange radio signal coming from Proxima Centauri, which is the star system closest to the Sun. The signal occupies an oddly narrow 982 megahertz band that's unused by human-made spacecraft, yet not possible, oop, I'm going to screw that up, yet not possible through known natural processes. The frequency shifts up to rather than down like you would expect for a planet, so they don't know what the hell this thing is. They said that although Proxima Centauri does host a potentially habitable planet, that the signal that hasn't well, that the signal hasn't been detected since its initial observation between April and May of 2019. They said it was still carefully investigating and that unusual signals are typically interference. So they can't fully explain it yet. They're not saying it was aliens. They're not even saying some big long sentence that means it might be aliens. What they are saying is, hey, there's a mysterious signal. It's coming from a a star system that could potentially have a habitable planet in it, and it's our neighboring star system. It's very close by, you know, as far as the universe is concerned, and we don't know what it is. All righty, up next in paranormal news, actually the last story in paranormal news, Birmingham I think it's Birmingham. Sure, why not? Birmingham history teacher hunts Bigfoot, launches Roku channel about quest for Sasquatch. By day, Jim Sherman deals in facts as Birmingham Grove's high school history teacher. But in his free time, he hunts the elusive, some would say mythical creature known as Bigfoot. 
Now, Sherman, who's 50, has followed his quest, which often takes him into the forests of the Upper Peninsula for more than three decades. Wait, is this Michigan? No way. Holy crap, I got to try and get this guy on the show. I want this guy. He's local. Well, local, you know, where I grew up. Um, that is Birmingham then. Ah, that's awesome. Anyhow, he goes on to say, yeah, um, for more than three decades, he's now taking it to the next level with Bigfoot Hunters, a Roku video blog channel. What? All right, now I got to find out how I can get Paranormal Almanac to be on a Roku video blog channel. Kurt's going to look into that after this episode. He says, if you're weird and interested in looking into things that aren't supposed to be out there, other people's experiences with crazy things in the woods that aren't supposed to happen, this is where to look. He goes on to say, the channel, which currently has five video compilations, I try to apply as much science to the research as possible. I like to analyze the data and I'm really skeptical and will throw in random Bigfoot experiences on top of it all. So I really like how this guy's doing the research. I have I have a Roku in the in the bedroom. I've got to find this channel and uh, and watch this show, Bigfoot Hunters, from a guy from Michigan. I'm all about that. Uh, that's, let's see. The story goes on to say, The path that led to an extraordinary obsession with Sasquatch began when Sherman was still in the fourth grade. He was fascinated by not, by not only the idea of Bigfoot, but anything scary or supernatural, including ghosts, the Loch Ness Monster, and UFOs. He says, The funny thing is, it's cool and exciting when you're young, and then you let it go. I stopped paying attention because, number one, I grew up and thought I should probably go to college. So he sets aside his childhood fantasies, matured, and did indeed go off to college, but not far into his higher education, he had an experience that he couldn't quite explain while camping with his father in the Upper Peninsula. He says over the course of three nights, he heard sounds outside the tent of something he identified as a big bipedal walking on two legs. Having grown up hunting, he said he knew the sounds of critters normally found in the woods and knows that deer can also sound bipedal, but this was different. From inside the tent, Sherman heard things being thrown about outside and the creature even touched the tent. When he reached up to swat it away, Sherman thought he would be hitting a bear snout, but instead he felt what he described as a really big hand, which pressed against the side of the tent. It made a harumph noise and then it walked away. A bear would have run off like a freight train, but this walked away. Now I never looked out. I was scared to death. Sherman said the logical person in him knew that it was not a bear, which, you know, with, without the posable thumbs could not throw objects. He reasoned it had to be a person, but wondered why someone would mess with his tent and throw things. Now, the mystery continued the next night, getting even stranger, while it, whatever it was never approached as close to the tent as it did the previous night, it commenced to shaking trees. Now, Sherman said, making an unbelievable noise by the third night of this, he said his dad, like, yo, we got to go. <clears throat> he said, I was so freaked out that it was uh, that I was un uncomfortable hunting. I couldn't hunt anymore. I was just afraid of the woods. And for a dozen years after, he avoided secluded forests where legend has it, Bigfoot lurks. But when he, when he was about uh, 30, he decided to face his fears and embrace his natural curiosity. Now, he did that through research, seeking others who had similar experiences. He also joined the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, which, has, which was founded in 1995 and whose members have a mission to, quote, resolve the mystery surrounding the Bigfoot phenomena, that is, to derive conclusive documentation of the species' existence. They say that this is done through seeking large primates in the forest. Oh, well, we all know that. Come on, guys. Let me skip ahead here. He's, uh, 
He's been leading ex- uh, expeditions in search of Bigfoot, or as Big Feet, he says, for the past decade, and is absolutely hooked. The expedition features all things he normally enjoys, hiking, camping, stories around campfires, and research. He says once you get to the Bigfoot bug, it's hard to get rid of it because it's exciting. There's so much weirdness out there. As an investigator, he said he's become kind of a contact person for those who have claimed to see Bigfoot. In his conversations with them, he says he first must, quote, verify they aren't crazy and uh, has some conversations early on that figure out what the point of or if they're actually telling the truth, basically. I'm kind of skipping ahead here. Um, he says, I got a pretty good BS detector. I'm a high school, t- uh, high school history teacher, so I can tell if someone's just, you know, bullshitting they saw something they saw from a television show or if they're just plain making it up or if they've had an experience. Now, he's got some casts of Bigfoot feet that are really nice, uh, better than the one that I have, to be honest with you. And uh, he says that uh, he's excited to see what's going to happen. To date, his most convincing personal piece of evidence, apart from his experience in the tent as a child, has been scary growling and howling that he has heard and could not identify to anything known to him and on multiple occasions in the Upper Peninsula seeing a single red eye at the height of about seven feet which fled when approached. Says it's a dumb thing to think that there's something that can elude all the cameras, game cameras, and everything, but look at all the witness accounts. But it's but it's worth having fun, honestly. It's such a more healthy hobby. At this point, I could have had a midlife crisis and grown a mullet or rode a motorcycle. Instead, I have this silly hobby. It's like a wilderness CSI kind of thing. Oh, that's awesome. I got to say, uh, again... I love that this guy's a uh, you know fellow Michigander, Michiganian. Um, I love that this guy just wanted to start doing it and just did it. And yeah, he's right. Everybody's fascinated by UFOs and ghosts and Bigfoot and everything as kids, and they kind of just fade away from it as they get older. Uh, you know, obviously not talking about myself here. I've been talking about this crap forever, but for the most part, he is a hundred percent right. And now he's got his own Roku channel. I got to get Paranormal Almanac on this Roku channel. I can I can do a whole episode without swearing. I, I know I've already sworn this episode. I'm just saying I can do a whole episode without swearing if need be. But very, very cool. I can't wait to find out more. And I want to contact him to see if he'll be on the show. I think it'd be a fun interview. I think it'd be a fun uh, guest. All righty, let's take a quick break. That's it for Paranormal News. Let's wrap that up. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with the actual topic at hand. All righty, we are back. Like I said earlier, on this edition, I want to take a look at some lesser-known UFO sightings kind of like throughout time. That's right, not just recent UFO sightings. I want to go through history. I want to find the sightings that I've never heard of or I might have only heard a little bit about, but not the popular ones. So hopefully... You guys are going to hear stuff on this episode that you never heard before, or maybe you've heard a couple of them, but not everything. That's my whole goal with this episode, and I think we can all agree that, yes, UFO stuff really kicked off with Roswell and, you know, a few older sightings like that one in Texas and whatnot. But but avid listeners will recall America's founding fathers had UFO sightings. A Texas town had a crashed UFO in the late 1800s. Hell, 
UFOs even appeared in art throughout history. Now, if none of these sound familiar, well, then you have a lot of episodes of Paranormal Almanac to catch up on because I've talked about all of those on previous episodes. But now, how about some lesser-known cases? Let's see what you've heard of and what you haven't heard of. And uh, like I said, if you have heard of all of these that I'm just about to talk about in this episode, if at the end of this episode you go, yep, I knew about every one of them, well then, smarty pants, how about you go back through every Paranormal Almanac episode and unreverse the reverse taglines that are at the end of every episode? That should keep you busy. I don't think anybody's done that. I don't know anybody yet who has unreversed every one. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you have to stay through the end music because at the very end of every episode, I like to reverse just a little quick saying, why? Why not? Um, but I don't know anybody who's messaged me saying, I've listened to them all unreversed. I know what they all say. I don't even know what they all say at this point. I mean... We're 160-some episodes in. I have no idea what most of them are. I probably forgot most of them. But anyhow, okay. On to the UFOs. The first one on this episode is from 1071. Yeah. 1071. November 3rd, 1071 to be exact. So if you're keeping you know, track, you can flip back to November 3rd, 1071, because that's when poet... Su Dong Po documented seeing a UFO while staying overnight in the Jinshan Temple in Jiangxu Jiang, Province. Jiangsu Province? I don't know. I am so sorry. I know I butchered that. I apologize. It was written that in the dark of night, the Yangtze River suddenly lit up. Su was amazed at seeing this and recorded his experiences in a poem called Touring Jinshan's Temple. Here is the translated version that I just assume is right because I can't translate it by myself. At this time, the moon debuts on the river. On the second watch, the sky darkens accompanied by the moonlight. The middle of the river appears as if engulfed in torch flames. Here's where it gets good. It inflames and shines upon the mountains, startling birds at rest. How disappointed I am... I cannot think what it might be, not ghost nor human, what sort of thing is it? Now, some have speculated it was a meteor, but other mentions, like from the same time, were written as well, and they're pretty intense records of natural events at that time that was done in China. I mean, they have all of the records for celestial events, and they say, no. This was not a meteor. This was not a known celestial event. So, obviously, it's 1071. That's all I have to go on. But between that and the meteorological records, this is the beginning of an unidentified flying object that is not a meteor. Alrighty, let's stay in China for a bit and go on to Shengqiu. Now, he was a scientist of the Song Dynasty. Now, he wrote about an unknown shiny object, not one, many unknown shiny objects in his book, Brush Talks from a Dream Brook. Now, in, a, in that book, chapter 21, tells the story of Lu Zongfu, 
who got up before sunrise and noticed glittering light, light, ugh, glittering light-like objects around his home. Now, when he took a closer look, the light objects looked like water. Now, he tried to scoop them onto a paper, paper fan, but they slid off like liquid. Although the light was coming from the objects was intensely bright, when a torch was shown, they disappeared. Look, I'll be honest, I have no idea what he could possibly have been looking at. So he's got a bunch of glittering, light-like objects floating around his home. He tries to scoop them up, and they were just like, you know, like try to scoop them up with a paper fan, but they slid off like liquid. That sounds like mercury, or it sounds actually what it sounds like. It sounds like the stuff inside a glow stick, but... I don't think he had glow sticks back then. I don't know what this possibly could even remotely be. Some kind of phosphorescent um, moss or, you know, that stuff like in the ocean when the um, that glowing plankton or whatever it is, the bioluminescent bio plankton. It could be something like that that was dripping down the walls or dripping off trees or whatever, but still, no idea, and I can't ask him, so let's keep on moving on. Now, the next one is definitely not a meteor because it was watched flying for two straight hours. That's right. And now it happened in the Chow's, Chow's coup in the Guangdong province during the Ming Dynasty on the night of December 3rd, 1577. That's how specific these are. There's going to be some later on where they were like, I don't know, it was either 1871 or 1872. This one is like, no, no. It was December 3rd. 1577, it was watched for two hours, here's the witnesses, and it was all written about. They say that uh, the object that they were watching in the sky had a tail that spun like a wheel. Now, like I said, lit up the night sky for over two hours, a bunch of witnesses written down when it happened. I don't know anything that can float around for two full hours, especially back then, um, 1577, there was nothing in the skies like that in 1577 that could possibly even remotely do that. I mean, they would know what a fireworks show is. So I don't know what the hell that could have been. All righty. Let's go on to the painting of red hot flame hovers in the air, which I don't think I talked about before um, in the artwork about UFOs. I was trying to look it up and I couldn't find it. So I don't think I've talked about this one before. Now, this painting is from 1892. The subject of the painting is a UFO sighting, and it was painted by Wu Yoru. Yuru. Wu Yuru. Now, the painting features a large crowd standing on Red Sparrow Bridge in Nanjing City, looking up towards a glowing object in the sky. Now, the artist notes in the painting, at 8 o'clock on the night of September 28th, a bright object appeared suddenly in the southern sky of Nanjing, Nanjing City. Its shape resembled a gigantic egg and it was traveling slowly eastward. The object was clearly visible in the night sky. Hundreds of civilians were standing on Red Sparrow Bridge, jostling for a good view. Some said it was a meteor, but meteors travel much faster. Others said it was one of those paper flying lanterns, but here's the thing with that. They actually tried to debunk it right when they were seeing it. Like, what could it be, a meteor? No, it's too slow. Oh, uh, paper lanterns. Well, no, because the wind was blowing to the north that night and the object was heading south. 
besides, or heading east, sorry, the object was heading east. Besides the fact the size of this thing was too huge for a paper lantern. Now, supposedly, an elderly man who witnessed the event said that a soft sound was heard when the object first appeared. Now, he added that the object soared up in the sky from the southern outskirts of the city. So, I don't, again, I mean, you're going to hear me say that a lot in this episode. I don't have a clue what they could have been seeing. There's nothing around that time, 1892, that could possibly do what they were seeing. And so many people freaking saw it, like so many. So I don't have a clue what that possibly could be. But um, very interesting. I love these ones where there's not even a clue, but there's tons of witnesses. It was written about at the time. That's a key thing for me for all of these stories. Can I find corroborating evidence from the time? I don't want to find a book that was written about possible UFOs or ghosts or whatever from the 70s that talk about this because I want to find out about it from when it happened. Sure, I'll look up those books and I'll read that information as well, but I want the information from when it happened. And sadly, you know, for most of America's stuff, it's very hard to find that kind of um, corroboration, but not here. These... These are well-documented, well-written about, you know, obviously still debated as what they could possibly be. But if you look at this painting, I mean, I'm looking at it now. If you look at this painting, yeah, that's a UFO. I'm sorry. I know that artists artists can take, you know, like, you know, artistic expression or whatever, but I'm looking at a UFO in a painting. I'll put it up on Facebook or whatnot, but... um I mean, I have no clue. I have no clue what else it could be. Uh, anyhow, so that was, uh, so a bunch from China again uh, that happened a long time ago. Uh, there's a ton more though that say that um, that it could be. You know, like they, there's some that say, "Oh, it definitely could have been a blimp. Or it could have been an airship. It could have been this and stuff." At that time was possible. So I left those off the list. I only wanted the ones that were way too early for a blimp to be floating by. I mean, there's no blimps in the 1500s flying by with with spinning wheels of sparks coming up behind it for two straight hours. But uh, I don't know. It's just, it's bizarre. So let, anyhow, let's move on. Let's move over to Japan in 1803. Now, depending where you get your info, this either happened in February or March of 1803, and the story says that local fishermen saw a vessel drifting in close-by waters. It was an odd-looking boat, so they got a little closer to check it out. Now, they called it an Utsorofun or an Urobun. I know I got that wrong. And it's basically, the description is, it's a basic UFO disc-shaped object, 10 feet high, 18 feet wide, floating adrift on the waters that had portholes. Now, they say when they pulled up alongside it, they could look in through those portholes, and they saw that the inside of the ship, whatever you want to call it, was decorated with texts written in an unknown language, but there was also somebody inside. So, they towed it ashore, and quote, a beautiful young woman with odd features and red and white hair that was dressed in strange clothes appeared from inside the UFO. Now, the fishermen claim that she held a square box that, quote, no one was allowed to touch. She didn't speak Japanese, and she kind of, like, 
when she spoke, she spoke in a language that they couldn't understand, so they were kind of trying to figure out how to communicate with each other, but it was very frustrating. Eventually, she gets back in the UFO, and they kind of float it back out into sea, mysterious box in hand. Sounds crazy, right? Well, there might, might be a kernel of truth to this story. Because there are some historians who think that this actually happened, and this one was a Russian ship of some kind. Now, the details always vary, but apparently somewhere near this time, somewhere around 1803, an English ship ran aground near the exact same spot, and they had to go out and help them out back out to sea. So ships from other countries were running aground near there. That did happen. And they figured between the Russian alphabet and the description of the woman, which I didn't know there were that many uh, redheads in Russia, but apparently there are, the uh, historians are saying this is probably a Russian woman. Why she was alone in the ship, why they kind of pushed her back out to sea instead of, you know, really helping her, it's hard to say. But uh, I don't know, the skeptical side of me wants to write this one off as just some poor Russian girl Lost at sea, she was found finally, she was so happy probably to be found, and then just pushed back out to sea by some Japanese fishermen. But the drawings of the ship that they found her in look nothing like a boat. Absolutely nothing like any Russian boat, English boat, American boat, Viking boat, you name the boat. It looks nothing like any of those boats. Sure, boats had portholes, but that's about as close to a boat as it actually looks. The drawing looks like a flipping UFO, but I don't know. I'll go with the skeptics on this one and say it was probably some foreign fisherman woman. I don't know. Alrighty, let's skip ahead in time a bit to 1808 when a 24-year-old schoolteacher named Cynthia Everett, who lived in Camden, Maine, wrote this in her diary. July 22nd. About 10 o'clock, I saw a very strange appearance. It was a light which proceeded from the east. At the first sight, I thought it was a meteor. Hurt here. She obviously wasn't an English teacher because she misspelled meteor. Yep, that's right. I am teacher shaming a woman from 1808. Anyhow, uh, it was obviously not a meteor, but from its motion, I soon perceived it was not. It seemed to dart at first as quickly as light and appeared to be in the atmosphere, but lowered towards the ground and kept on at an equal distance, sometimes ascending and sometimes descending. Yeah, that's, um, that's not what meteors do at all. And there was nothing that could be in the sky in 1808 over, where are we at, Maine, something, Camden, Maine, that could do what she saw that goes from the atmosphere closer to the ground, maintaining a parallel um, maintaining parallel trajectory to the horizon, if you will, going up and down, descending and ascending. That's not what meteors do. That's not what anything in the sky in 1808 does. Now, these are the ones I love. How can you debunk this? It's not swamp gas. It's not Venus or, you know, you pick whatever ridiculous attempt to debunk UFOs are out there you know, whatever Project Blue Book debunking they want to choose that day, that's nothing compared, that doesn't describe anything of what she saw at all. Now, she clearly saw and watched something that just didn't exist back then, 
and this one's in her own writing. There's a woman named Dr. Ranlett, and now she's the one who found the entry while transcribing the diary. She finds it significant that Cynthia Everett did not explain what she witnessed as a natural phenomena. Since she was well-educated, had first-hand knowledge of the night sky in the area at that time, she said she was the kind of person who could have or would have explained it as a natural phenomenon if she could have. In fact, she did. Her first thought was that it's a meteor. So I agree. There's something here. I agree with Dr. Ranlett. Like, this woman knew the town, knew the area, knew what was in the night sky, was educated, was a teacher. She started with the obvious, almost be a meteor, and then ruled that out. And what we're left with is an unknown flying object that was written about in a diary in 1808. Absolutely incredible. Alrighty, let's move forward just a little bit further to the 1850s. Actually, for all the 1850s. That's right, the entire decade from 1850 through 1860, settlers in Nebraska wrote about the sightings of something in the sky. They, I mean, it's going to get weird. I'm going to tell you right now. Now, they called them sky or luminous serpents, but these also weren't meteors because they clearly wrote that what they were seeing were, quote, elongated metallic structures. All through the 1850s, elongated metallic structures. Now, supposedly, there's a Nebraska folk ballad about these sightings. Here's the problem. The only source for this Nebraska folk ballad that I can find is a book of love songs to the Plains written in 1966 and nothing earlier. So, grain of salt time. I can't find a recorded version of this. I can't find any version being mentioned of this prior to the Love Songs to the Plains in 1966, this book. I'm sure as hell not going to sing it, but... Here's a little taste of it. "'Twas on a dark night in 66 when we was laying steel. We seen a flying engine without no wing or wheel. It came a-roaring in the sky with lights along the side and scales like a serpent's hide. And then it just ends. That's the end of it. That's the only part of it that I can find anywhere online in this book, anywhere. It's not a full song. Come on, guys. You were had like a... You didn't even finish that rhyme, I don't think. Like, I don't know. All I'm saying is, that's all I could find lyric-wise, but it was seen all across, uh, all across Nebraska. Apparently, it was even seen on a steamboat, too. All eyewitnesses said that although it looked like a lit-up serpent, it was definitely mechanical. Then, in June, for, June 1st, actually, not in June, on June 1st, 1853, students at Burritt College in Tennessee saw, quote, two luminous, unusual objects just to the north of the rising sun. One looked like a small new moon, the other a larger star. Okay, Kurt here. At this point, it just sounds like they're looking up in the night sky and saying what they're seeing. The first one slowly grew smaller until it was no longer visible, but the second one grew larger and assumed and assumed a globular shape. Okay, so it's not Venus. I mean, something's getting so close that it became a large global shape. 
Professor A.C. Carnes, who interviewed the students and reported their sightings to Scientific American, wrote, The first then became visible again and increased rapidly in size, while the other diminished. And the two spots kept changing thus for about a half an hour. There was considerable wind at the time, and light, fleecy clouds passed by, showing the lights to be confined to one place in the sky. Yeah, you, all right. Let me ask you, I'm going to, you know, I usually wait till the question till the end. I'm going to ask you now, what could that have been? Not swamp gas. I mean, the two spheres coming, like one going way far away, one coming very up close until it's huge, and then vice versa back and forth for a half an hour? I mean, I don't even know what that could possibly be. Um, Yeah, no idea. But if all of that wasn't weird enough, it wasn't just in America. Because people also saw identical UFOs to this one in 1868 in Chile. That's right. April 1868, a newspaper ran a story about them. On its body, elongated like a serpent, one of the alleged witnesses declared, we could see brilliant scales which clashed together with a metallic sound as the strange animal turned its body in flight. I don't know. More serpents, more giant dragons in the sky, more mechanical falcors, if you will. I don't have a clue what that could be. All right, next. Next is possibly the oldest known UFO photo ever. The photo was taken in either 1870 or 1871, again, depending where you get your info. Now, it was taken from the summit of Mount, uh, Mount not a Mount Olympus, Mount Washington, it's obviously not a very clear photo. It's from 1870, so cut them some slack. But it looks like uh, white clouds or maybe even a snowy mountain, like looking down on top of a snowy, snowy mountain top. And there is definitely a large black cigar-shaped thing on the photo. I will be honest. I would not have looked at this photo and immediately thought, oh, wow, that's a UFO. But... The photographer that took the photo said, this thing, whatever it was, wasn't lying on the snow, but floating above the mountain in 1870. And if that was, uh, if that's the case, then yeah, I have no idea what could even remotely be. I don't even know exactly how they took the photo, to be honest with you. It was taken from the summit of Mount Washington, looking down on the other mountains, I guess. I mean, I'm looking at the photo... I have no idea. I guess possibly, you know, it's a sepia-type photo of some cigar-shaped black thing or Millennium Falcon-looking thing from the side. Um, I know it looks like a painting to me, but they say it's a photograph. They say it's from 1870, 1871. There's nothing that was in the sky around that time that it could possibly be. So, yeah, I don't know. Stumped yet again. Alrighty, from there. Let's go on to Australia in 1879 for this next sighting. Now, this one was also written about in a local paper at the time, which I love. And it says, A small black cloud on a clear day appeared in the east, traveling not very swiftly towards the northwest, which burst into a ball of fire with an apparent disk the size of the full moon, blood red in color. It left a train of black or dark-colored vapor across the heavens, 
which was visible for three quarters of an hour. No sound was heard. The sky was perfectly clear. The thermometer, 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. Again, that doesn't sound like a meteor or a meteorite, technically. If you really want to get technical, if they were seeing, quote-unquote, meteors, they weren't. They were seeing meteorites, but still, that doesn't sound like what this was at all. Especially, uh, let's see, swiftly traveling towards the northwest, burst into a ball of fire, okay, meteorite, an apparent disk, not meteorite, the size of the full moon, blood red in color. I don't have a flipping clue what that one is, but let's stick with Australia for a second. Um, it's a bizarre, I guess, technically UFO encounter in 1890. This one happened in Raymond Terrace. Raymond Terrace, Mrs. L. Meredith said, "My mother remembers that in Raymond Terrace, out from uh, Newcastle, NSW, one morning in 1890." A huge cloud shaped like a fish with a long tail appeared in a clear sky. Everyone in the district noticed it, and soon word passed that the that should the fish-like cloud move its tail, the world would end. Grown-ups and children actually believed this, and even elderly folk stopped up stopped up all night watching it. After about three days, it disappeared. And the world kept going. What the hell? All right, Australians, you know I love you. I want to go to Australia seriously bad. But what the F is that? Where the crap is Newcastle? And is everybody high in Newcastle in the 1890s? Like, what the? They saw this ginormous fish in the sky and then went, well, y'all know that if there's a fish in the sky and it uh, flips his tail around, moves his tail, yep, that's the end of the world. You know that old story. The old... End of the world, fish flappy tail thingy in the sky. And then everybody just stayed up watching this thing for three days. Also, 1890, cameras were a thing. Nobody in the town for three days could have pointed one of those old-timey cameras up at the sky and taken a goddamn photo of a fish in the sky. Australia, you got some explaining to do. Alrighty, sticking with Australia. I think this might be the last. Yeah, this is this is the last one for the for this episode. Sticking in Australia, 1895, Oxford University, J H J A H. Oh, this isn't Alaska. Oh, I lied. Going on over to Oxford University in 1895, J A H Murray saw one on the evening of of August 31st, 1895. What did he see? Well, he says I saw a brilliant luminous body which suddenly emerged over the tops of the trees. Uh, over the tops of the trees before me on the left and moved eastward across the sky above and in front of me. Its appearance was at first glance such as to suggest a brilliant meteor considerably larger than Venus at her greatest brilliancy, but the slowness of the motion made one doubt whether it was not some artificial firework. I watched for a second or two, it neared its culminating point and was about to be hidden from me by the lofty college building on which I sprang over the corner and was enabled to see it through the space between the old and new buildings of the college as it continued its course towards the eastern horizon. It became rapidly dimmer and finally disappeared behind a tree. The fact that it so perceptibly grew fainter as it receded seems to imply that it had not a very great elevation and its course 
was slower than that of any meteor I have ever seen. I want to repeat that last line because I know a lot of skeptics went, he was watching a meteor for a while, but it was still a meteor. This guy knows what a meteor looks like and says, its course was slower than that of any meteor I have ever seen. And it wasn't just him. There were, um, 20 minutes later, two other eyewitnesses saw the exact same thing for five minutes nearby, saying a quarter of the heavens lit up with something mechanical. Boom, skeptics. They say it right there. Something mechanical. Not a meteor. What was it? <laughs> I have no flipping clue. But I can tell you this. This kind of thing is more common than I even thought. I really thought it was going to be really difficult to kind of fill up almost an hour. We're damn close to an hour. With... um. 1800s and 1700s, all the way going all the way back to the 1000s. What the hell? Like, I don't know what these people were seeing, but they weren't seeing meteors. Even if you tried to say, all right, Kurt, 10% of these might be something that we could be, you know, like might be a meteor. It might be a natural event. What the hell were these other ones? Especially when people were seeing stuff in 1895, something mechanical flying across the sky, bigger than anything they had then or now from what it sounds like. You can't tell me that these are meteors is all I'm saying. I don't know what the hell they were, but they were UFOs for all intents and purposes, obviously, unidentified flying object. But more than just that, it wasn't just people miss spotting something or saying what they were seeing. It's not Venus. It's not swamp gas. It's not anything. I'll, I'll, I'll take out that town in Australia with the f giant flying fish. Like, that's just weird. Those people were all just obviously high. But the rest of these people, they were just regular folks who just happened to look up and see something that they couldn't explain, even remotely explain what they were seeing, and tried to logically figure out what they were seeing and were left stumped. So, um... Yeah, I don't know. So I guess, you know, for your homework, if you are if you live in Australia and you had anybody that grew up in that freaking town, um, uh, where's the town? What the hell's the name of that damn town? Um, well, you know the town. You, you heard me right. You heard me talk about it. Newcastle. There we go. Newcastle. All right, Australians. You got to give me some input on what the hell is happening in Newcastle. Are they still weird? Do they still believe in a giant flying fish? Because that wasn't that long ago, 1890. If a giant flying fish flew over California in 1890 for three full days, you better damn well believe that there is a cult devoted to the flying fish. There'd be, you know, handing out flyers still on Hollywood Boulevard right next to the Scientology. You, you bet your ass that a bunch of celebrities would have some giant flying fish tattoo on their chest and talk about the, you know, the great flying fish of 1890. Come on, it'd be a thing. So, Australia, what the F? What the F, Australia? All righty, what do you guys think? Do you guys believe in any of these? Do you guys, have you heard, well, this is the better question. I'm hoping the answer is no. Did you guys know about all of these? I'm hoping you listened to this episode and went, wow, all right, never heard that one before. That one, that's weird. Never heard that one before either. 
It's bizarre to me that these amazing UFO stories aren't more known, aren't out there, aren't more popular, if you will. And it's up to stupid people like me telling you people about it. Like, I didn't know about them. I didn't know about these prior to, you know, the research I do for this episode, for this podcast. But I don't know, like, it's just bizarre to me that there's this many stories from this long ago and people still just immediately shrug off UFOs. And I mean, besides the fact that we now know they're real and the American government said, yeah, UFOs are real. They're not from this earth. They're not made from this earth. And people are still going, eh, I don't know. I just don't believe in UFOs. I don't think that they've come and visited us yet. Come on. That's frustrating on, on all kinds of levels. I actually used, I don't know if you heard the last episode about, um, about the cryptids around the world. Um, I actually used just recently, I was talking to somebody about Bigfoot and they were like, that's just dumb. And I said, oh, really? Well, do you know about the bigly apes that were discovered? Eight foot tall chimpanzees that were discovered in the 90s. And this was their response. Hmm, maybe, I don't know. No, no, not maybe, I don't know. That thing you're holding in your hand, that's your phone. Look it up. You can see photos of them. These things exist. Eight foot tall chimpanzees were discovered in the 90s. Things are still going to be discovered. I'm telling you right now. It's not going to be just disclosure for the UFOs. It's going to be disclosure for Bigfoot. It's going to be, we're going to find some more cryptids is all I'm saying. There was a lot of things that were considered cryptozoology until they were actually discovered. Like the coelacanth, for God's sakes. You know what I'm saying. I'm, now I'm just rambling because I'm angry about the conversation I had. But the point is, UFOs. Here's a bunch of evidence for UFOs. Take that evidence. Do what you like with it. Debunk some of it. Hey, I'm all for that. I debunked a little bit of it. But you can't debunk all of this episode. That's where I'm getting at. All right, I hope you guys like this one. Hope you guys have a safe and happy holidays. I'll see you guys all in the new year. Um, new year's coming up soon. I don't think I'm going to do a live episode this week, but I might. You never know. Keep checking out, you know, keep tabs on the... Uh, the Twitch channel and the uh, the Facebook page to see if I throw up um, some live episodes. And if I do, please jump on and please call in. I love listening to you guys, uh, all your paranormal stories. You know, getting to interact with the fans is one of the best things about this show, best thing about this job, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but if I don't, I hope you all have a safe and happy new year, safe and happy holidays. Stay home, stay safe, wear a mask. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Yes, you